0: Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Stephen Boughton of The Slice because it's a Canada-focused episode and nobody knows Canadian tennis uh, like Stephen, who you're likely familiar with because of his presence on YouTube. Again, uh, running a great operation at The Slice. Deep dive into Felix, Chapeau and uh, what it was like to cover tennis on the road for eight months which uh, Steven just got back from doing. But first, a couple of thoughts on the two matches that propelled Canada to their first ever Davis Cup title with a win over Australia in the final tie. Felix Auger-Aliassime beating Alex De Chapeau defeats Tanasi Kokonakis. I was blown away by the returning from Dennis. So Tanasi Kokonakis serving to the lefty, Denis Shapovalov, and Kokonakis is a righty, okay? He serves to the backhand vast majority of his first serves in this match because he thinks he's going to get a forehand if he does. He thinks he's going to get a forehand on the deuce side because when the ball is coming in as fast as Kokonakis' first serve does, it is easy to go middle, it is easy to go cross-court, it is very difficult to time the backhand return down the line. What I was so impressed with from Shapovalov was his ability to do just that. And here we go on the deuce side, uh, one all in the second set. Look at how he measures this and times this return, puts it in a spot where Kokonakis is basically defending on his backhand on the first ball. After making a first serve to Shapovalov's backhand. And it's the same exact dynamic on the ad side when you're serving to the lefty backhand and your righty, uh, you're banking on the fact that it's very difficult to hit that backhand inside-out return. Kokonakis wants forehands. It's way better than his backhand. He serves to Chapeau's backhand thinking, well, he's probably going to go middle, uh, or he's probably going to go inside-in, or, I mean, you could call it cross-court. It's not really cross-court. It's really inside-in. Uh, but... To go inside out is really tough. Again, and I'm not just cherry picking here, chapeau making these returns consistently. And on both of the points that, that I just showed you, uh, it actually set up on the fourth shot of the rally. So you see here's uh, Kokonakis' contact point here. It sets up on the, the fourth shot of the rally uh, an attacking forehand for uh, Denis Shapovalov. So, obviously, if is going to make that return consistently, he's going to break serve. Kokonakis just needs to get his forehand in play to start these points. Uh, Tanasi's backhand was pretty rough in this match. He struggled to protect it. It's predictable cross-court into Shapovalov's forehand. That presented huge issues. Uh, Dennis, was, Dennis was doing an awesome job with his placement. 66% of Shapo's shots were into the backhand third of the court for Kokonakis. 25% were into the forehand third, so getting him on the run, opening up that backhand side. Only 9% of Denis Shapovalov's shots landed in the middle third of the court, which is pretty remarkable. But that 66% of the to the backhand is uh, really the main thing that stands out here. Uh, look at this stat. If you look at the right corner of the screen, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, These are the rally shots. Shapovalov hitting 73% forehands. Kokonakis just 39% forehands. So uh, on the flip side, Shapovalov's hitting 27% backhands, and Kokonakis is hitting 61% backhands. A lot of reasons for that. Shapovalov in more offensive positions in the average rally. Kokonakis on his backhand, again, not going down the line, not able to change that pattern. Uh, so you know, a lot of Chapo forehand Kokonakis backhand. Um, it was uh, it was really dominant in the in the rallies for Chapo. I didn't watch Kokonakis for the entire week, but he looked he looked a little slow to me uh, in this match. It got a little bit better in the second set, but I am wondering if physically he was feeling a little bit worn down because the court coverage, not that Kokonakis is generally exceptional at covering the court. I thought it was kind of worse than usual. But ultimately, this was kind of a continuation of the improvements that I've been seeing from Denis Shapovalov that uh, I'm such a big fan of. And I talked to Stephen about it a little bit later, but it's making high percentage decisions. It's keeping his head still through the contact zone. It's keeping his lower body grounded, which is one that really sticks out. If you've, uh, if you've watched a lot of Denis Shapovalov and you watch it now, it, it's clear he's just not leaping through his shots as much as he once did, staying on the ground in his lower body. And uh, abbreviating the follow-through is the last thing that I've noticed. So Shapovalov got Canada on the board over Australia, one love. And then it was Felix Auger-Aliassime versus Alex Dimonor. We've talked about FAA's season, really getting a lot of boost from the team events, winning the ATP Cup to start the year, uh, beating Alexander Zverev at that event, ultimately having a a good ATP Cup, uh, going to Davis Cup, beating Carlos Alcaraz, beating Novak Djokovic at Laver Cup. Those wins were kind of the springboard for what he would end up doing in the month of October, winning three titles in three weeks, uh, securing his spot emphatically for the ATP Finals. Three of his seven top 10 wins on the season have come in these team events, but Alex Minaur is also very much a guy who improves in Davis Cup, improves in team events. There's never been any doubt about that. Uh, he's another guy who started off the year with a big win at ATP Cup against uh, Matteo Berrettini and uh, he beat Bodic von de Zanskulp and Marin Cilic to kind of power Australia to this Davis Cup Finals. But on this occasion, Felix looked like the heavyweight very, very clearly. It was mostly because of his forehand. You know, we know coming in that FAA is going to get a lot more out of his first serve than Demon Orr. But for Demon, you know, he needs to hold his own in the rallies off of the ground. And Felix's forehand was the best shot on the court by so much distance here. So, 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 so much distance. It completely controlled the match. I have I had stats after the first set. I don't have uh, stats for the full match, but forehand winners after set one. Nine forehand winners for Felix. Three ground stroke winners total for Alex Dimonor. Ultimately, you know, Demon wanted to use his consistency advantage into Felix's backhand. He wanted to extend rallies into Felix's backhand. It worked, it kinda worked. I don't think that FAA had this amazing backhand day. Uh, The errors were there, the mistakes were there, uh, but I thought there were two factors. First of all, Demon didn't really have the firepower to punish Felix when he hit bad trades. Poor trades into the middle, too short, etc. Second thing is Demon wasn't, you know, able to get it to Felix's backhand enough for the consistency advantage to really bear itself out and to result into things like breaks of serve and long-term success in the match. So I thought it worked, but just not nearly enough for Alex Demonor for that to be the difference in the match. The difference in the match was Felix's weapons. Uh, having no issue hitting through Alex Di Minaur's speed and uh, the forehand really dominating proceedings. We're joined for the first time by Stephen Bouton of the Slice. Many of you certainly know him and uh, as the authority on Canadian tennis, uh, a man who I am very confident has watched as much Felix Oje aliassime and Denis Shapovalov matches as anyone on this planet this year. Uh, he is the man to talk to right now as Canada Wins the Davis Cup, Um, and also he's back from a a rendezvous in Europe, which I'm very excited uh, to to talk to uh, to talk to him about. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on Monday Match Analysis. Um, I know that as the uh, OGs, as you put it, of uh, tennis YouTube, uh, people will be very excited for this uh, meeting.
1: Yeah, I hope they are, and yeah, I'm excited for it. So thanks for having me on, Gil. I know we've uh, our two channels. I think. You know, started around the same time and have grown together and uh, yeah, happy to be called an OG with you and uh, yeah, excited to be on here talking about great news for Canada. Literally just, you know, it's just going to be a, a talk fest about how great Canada is right now because we're riding high on the <laughs> Canadian wave after, yeah, a great weekend and a great uh, last week at Davis Cup.
0: So I'm going to guide the conversation a little bit more in a moment, but first I just want to kind of give you the floor on on your big takeaways uh, from from these victories, full disclosure. Um, you know, I, I was keyed in on the final and I watched the, the Chapa win over Kokonakis and I'm in the middle of, uh, finishing FAA over Demon a little bit behind this week. Um, but I think you were locked in the whole week. I mean, what, what stood out to you about this, this run to the, the title for Canada?
1: Yeah. Th- you know, there was a lot and i Also in full disclosure to me, I actually missed basically the entire, I watched some highlights of the Spain or sorry, not Spain, Italy uh, semifinal. I was watching the scores. I was just in a weird travel situation and couldn't watch. Um, But yeah, it was uh, a lot to digest from this week going into it. And I think, you know, you might, you might guide us there in in a few minutes here, but there was a lot going into the Davis cup uh, finals and how it was set up, you know, the format change and, you know, technically Canada wasn't even supposed to be there this year because they, they lost in March in like pre-qualifying other uh, then they got a wild card in there. But coming into the ATP finals, you know, myself, and I know the commentators uh, in Canada here, we are all pretty confident that Canada had a really good shot to win the ATP finals, right? It's just, to me, like you look at the the one, two punch in a team event always, right? Because it, it's so big, two, you can't just have one good player, right? So you got Felix who can, in my opinion, you know, confident, you know he can beat anyone on earth right now. And then you got Shapovalov who's about as good as a follow-up punches as we had in that ATB finals bracket. Uh, so I was pretty confident, but then, you know, they almost went out in round one, like it was really, really close to, to them just going out. Um, and I thought the, the, you know, the turnaround that they had in the doubles match was it was Shapovalov and Pospisil um, playing who created a lot of magic in 2019. If you remember that on the run to the finals there and, um, They kind of played above, punched above their weight there. I thought at that point they were losing to the two players from Germany who I think are more double specialists. And, but then they just kind of turned it around and they all of a sudden just, and you know, Chappell talked about it after he's like, that was really amazing to him how they really turned it on in the second half of that match and just took it to the Germans. Schapel won it with a clean, like returning winner, I think, which kind of capped off how high they were flying. And that was like, wow, okay. So they're scrappy. They got the heart. And yeah, that got them rolling. But then they almost lost again to uh, the Italians. It was a super close match or tie there. And uh, yeah, I think the big takeaways are that, you know, Canada, especially on the men's side with the Davis Cup team, has a, like a ton of heart. The camaraderie is amazing, which I can talk about in a bit with some of the post-match press conference interactions we had, which were really funny. And uh, yeah, just a great group of guys. And and yeah, Canada, Canada is officially, I'm calling it a tennis world powerhouse
0: they certainly are with their two guys and uh not only of course did they uh take this davis cup they also won the atp cup at the beginning of the year so it was a a double whammy uh for team canada in these team competitions uh you mentioned the press conference i'm i'm all right with starting there i mean what's what stood out to you about what um what they had to say after the match did you see any of it or any clips i i saw there was a loss of, of voice on yeah. uh, some of the uh, some of the supporting uh, players.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was maybe not so anything like profound that stuck out of the out of the um, out of the press conference. You know, these guys had all just won like the biggest title of their, I think, all of it, the, probably the biggest title of their careers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, they're super happy. Probably already had a couple of beers in them for sure. And you could, but the main thing that stuck out to me is like, you know, you could tell these guys. I know they all know each other. Um, especially Gabriel Diallo, Alexi Gallarno, who are the two guys that most people probably wouldn't know from that team. They're from the Quebec or the Montreal area, Felix and Gabriel, who's he's just coming out of the university of Kentucky. He's actually a very good kind of underrated challenger player. Um, he tra- trains with Felix's dad at his Academy in Montreal. So they all kind of know each other. And then Shapovalve obviously grew up with Felix and, and Vashik's like the, uh, and Va- I guess Vashik and Frank are like the godfathers there. So they had this like really good team chemistry and, and, I think that helped them pull through in there. And then, yeah, there was a funny, you know, I asked the question to Gabe and Alexi who never played in the finals. They didn't get any court time, which makes sense. Um, But they both had lost their voice completely and were like trying to talk. And it was, I think Shafa I could see it, like they were all like, when I asked the question, they were like, yes, we're going to make them like show off their like lost voices basically and expose them. And it was so funny. Like the line of the night from Gabriel was, he was like, yeah, we left it all on the bench. You know, that's what it takes to get us over the line. (laughs) It was just I thought really funny, and uh, yeah, kind of emblematic of the entire Canadian you know uh, fan base at home just going nuts, I'm sure, uh, which was also another crazy story. I don't know if you saw this, but the the SportsNet, which is a national broadcaster feed, literally had like a satellite go down with two games left in the match, the final Felix match. So nobody basically nobody in Canada saw the final point happen.
0: That's wild. I, it, I
1: had no idea about that wow it, it was crazy so it was a sports net satellite in toronto and his crazy rain or so, storm that knocked it off i guess so literally they had to cut to just the two commentators who i know both of them and they were just you know basically radio relaying what was happening i pulled it up on bet 365 on my phone and like watched it and like i literally got it up right on match point and i got to watch it so calamity of errors just like what are the odds but you know it's uh I don't know. That's just like the last few years wrapped up in a bell, but anyways, we got it. We got over the line and it was, it was amazing. But um, yeah, the, the, the team just, you know, you can see in that press conference, how, how tight knit they all are. And they, I think they all really like each other, which is not always the case in Davis cup, right? There's a lot of egos involved typically. So, um, but yeah, that was just a, that was a cool moment for us at the end there.
0: Yeah. And that, that part's good to see the satellite, not so much. Let's address the context of the, you know canada's wild card before we do our dissection of felix and chapeau which i'm very much looking forward to two of the more fascinating players going into the 2023 season basically what happened for those who uh who didn't catch it uh russia was banned which opened up a spot and uh the spot went to canada Andy Roddick I think made the biggest kind of splash on social media because he said look if it were if it were me as Davis Cup captain of Canada I wouldn't have even accepted the bid um, you know he he took a position that it was it was not right that a team that had, had already lost got to play in what was ultimately the group stage of the Davis Cup finals Canada ended up getting out of the group advancing to uh, Malaga and, uh, and obviously winning. To me, oh, and another detail that I wanna throw out there, Chapo and Felix didn't play when Canada lost in March. It was uh, Steven okay. Diaz and, and somebody else um, that, that didn't, didn't come through there. Uh, look, I, I didn't see anything wrong with anything that happened on any side of this. You, uh, you need to enter a team in the competition. Canada was clearly the team that was most ready to contend for the title. Um, I don't know exactly what the process was of selecting a wild
1: card, likely had something to do with the rankings. I think it was Uh, just, yeah, sorry to cut it. I think it was just they were the highest ranked team that had lost in that stage. Sure. Um, So there you go.
0: Um, It's the same take I had about Andy Murray when he started to get criticized for taking all the wild cards. Uh, You you take wild cards. You, You don't turn down wild cards. Nobody does that uh so i guess we can go i don't know how complicated this is or how much you have to say about this but for me no harm no foul with anything about this situation
1: yeah to me no harm no foul and i don't to me it's weird it's like a weird bone to pick honestly if you're andy roddick and i think even Leighton hewitt like piled in there on twitter it's just like i i don't know like where are you guys afraid of canada coming in like maybe you should have been because we just beat both of you but like It is like, it's like a lucky loser situation, basically. So that's like a very well-known thing and very common thing in tennis, right? Like lucky losers get entered into draws in every tournament almost. Um, And I guess that's kind of how I see it. And yeah, I don't really, that's all, doesn't matter now, I guess, so.
0: Yeah. Uh, All right, Felix, let's start with Felix. Obviously a huge fall. I've had a theory that FAA's mindset in the team competitions has been a little bit different, that he's been more emotional on court, fired up, and it's relaxed him, and it's allowed him to actually showcase a lot of his best tennis. Uh, when I watched him play in the, the group stage of Davis Cup and then Laver Cup, um, I tweeted that I want to see him bring that to the individual tournaments where he's he's by himself and he doesn't have a team behind him and uh, kind of transfer that mindset over. I kind of feel like he did that. Do you think I'm on to something there with Felix's mindset and how it might change in the team events, how we can kind of bring that over to in the regular events throughout the season?
1: Yeah, I think you absolutely are. Like, I think you've probably noticed and what you're maybe alluding to is the fact that like when in those things throughout his career, his young career so far, he, he does seem when he's not playing well or when he's losing to get very tense and get... They look very stressed out on the court. Is that what you kind of pick up on? Yeah, yeah. He shells up. He yeah. He keeps
0: everything inside of him, and usually the tennis is going downhill when he does that.
1: Yeah, and I, I that's the that's the exact same read I have out on as well. Like other players, for example, lose it. Like Shapovalov will get really mad. The tennis will also go downhill, but it's just like a different side of the same coin, basically. So Felix, yeah, I would, I always, I've seen him, and even this year, still t- sometimes some matches, like I get. Like, one that comes to mind is Rudin in Montreal, where he, you know, was playing horribly to start, and he just couldn't get out of that thing. So um, your point about him, you know, the team events maybe bringing out more emotion for him on court, which allowed him to, you know, get some of that tension out of his body and free up when he was, you know, in a battle, I think totally helped him. And I actually did ask him about that in person in Basel. So kind of right in the middle of that amazing run, or I guess, near the yeah, whatever. And And he said, yeah, he said he just got confidence like good confidence generally from the team events like it was after the u.s open he had a tough exit at the u.s open i think in round two to to draper and then he went beat alcaraz in the in the davis cup and then he went and beat Djokovic in the laver cup and then both of those are team events right so i think he did get that extra pump up there's more fist pumps there's more just total energy on the court and i think you're right that did help him to loosen up in those matches but maybe it helped him i didn't ask him specifically about the emotions um but on our next chat when i have a bit more time with him i, I might kind of ask him it's like yeah i think you know part of me when i watch you felix is like when you get so tight out there or you know i i would say like almost i want you to blow off steam sometimes like almost want you to smash a racket i know you're very like well behaved and you like keep it all proper but it seems like sometimes getting it out will help and honestly i've seen a little bit more edginess from him as far as like emotions in since these team events like you know if you remember paris the uh the whole be quiet to the yes. fans at the end there and like like that was crazy for him like you've never seen him do anything like that uh but that was kind of that whole maybe new a little bit more emotions and you know he still keeps it together on court but he's like just i think he's just getting a bit more confidence being you no know, like i'm a top dog out here and you know i'm going to i'm just going to play with that mojo which i think is only going to benefit him going forward cuz everyone knows he's a nice guy no one thinks he's a jerk and um, it was funny, I actually met, I met with his agent after that. And we were having a conversation and he was like, oh, a little bit, he was like, I've never seen him do that before. And I was like, you don't have to worry. I think the entire tennis community knows that he's a great guy and whoever that fan was totally had it coming to him. So nothing bad about his image there.
0: Yeah, everybody loved it. I loved it. It's just Felix, I think, getting more comfortable uh, in with himself and just having that kind of presence and that confidence. Uh, again, I think you put it perfectly. Like he is starting to feel like he's the man out there, and uh, and that's a good thing. And it's not just when things are going bad, letting out the negativity. It's also when you're down four-one in the first set, and it's love thirty, and and you dig out. Okay, you might still be down a break. It's four-two. Uh, get yourself fired up in that situation. Let out the positive stuff also. Uh, which I I feel has sometimes been lacking, not just the not just the negative emotion. So mm-hmm. do you feel like a lot of this increased success that he's had is mental? Because honestly, and this is different from Shapovalov, which we'll get to, I don't see a ton of stuff that's changed drastically technically. I look at the winning tennis that Felix has played throughout this fall, and I'm seeing dominant first serve, uh, serve plus one tennis, taking the ball early laser precision on the forehands, just trying to kind of break even, protect the backhand. Uh, there's nothing I'm seeing drastically differently about the way he's playing tennis. So am I missing something there? Or, you know, m- my sense is that it has been very mental for him.
1: Yeah, I think the, the change that the only change that I notice, I think it's a lot more strategic than I would guess you would call it, yeah, strategic than then technical. Nothing, you know, I've I've always found when, when Felix doesn't play a, a good match or he's playing uh nervous, he he starts to put kind of I would call it like artificial spin on the ball. His shots, instead of going like left to right, they kind of just go more up and down the back of the ball. Uh, you know, for whatever reason. And and I think when he got Tony Nadal on board, I think it was like mid last year or like maybe early last year a little bit. Springtime, Mm -hmm. I just noticed him becoming more and more aggressive, which is like obviously a super generic thing. Like be more aggressive, you know, fall, get to the net. Like Andy Murray had a great quote in one of his pressers. He's like, "That doesn't mean anything unless you like break it down." Because like on the ATP tour, you can't just do that. Like that's not a, a real strategy unless you're a guy like Felix who has a world class serve when it's working and a world class forehand, you know, when he's playing well. So. I noticed that Wimbledon, I think last year, and then more into the U S open kind of through that swing. And then, you know, he had a great, obviously result last U.S. open like 2021, I'm talking about. And then in uh, the Australian open this year, he started to just play more aggressively and strategically. And he thought, and it, and it seemed like he was playing with a better identity to his game. He's like, he kind of moved from like, I'm an all quarter, like aggressive baseliner to like, I'm an attacking player who when I get a forehand, I'm basically, unless I, you know, don't do something with that. I'm coming forward and I'm just going to take it to you and and like shove it down your throat, which is like, so it kind of gave like, now it gives me kind of Federer vibes. Honestly, when I watch him play, it's like if Federer got like a mid court short forehand, like the odds of him cutting the net after that were pretty high. If he was like feeling good, you know, and I feel the same, like watching Felix and Basel, like he was so confident, even against Alcraz. It was just like, my forehand is good enough to just end the point right now, or get me in a, you know, overwhelmingly dominant position in this point. So to me, it's just been a, 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 you know, a marginal trend. He was always, he would call himself an aggressive player, but I remember asking him after a loss, like, he's like, I'm an aggressive player. Like he said that, but then it was like, it was like two years ago. And I was like, well, nothing about your match today was really aggressive. You were just grinding with RBA from behind the baseline and he was just wearing you down like that. Like, so he he kind of always thought that, but now he's really playing like an actual ATP aggressive player. And, um and yeah I think he's doing it as as well as basically anyone on tour right now and I think that's how he should be playing going forward for sure
0: I can buy that for sure he he has been ruthless on the short balls on the forehand his margin is a little bit better where he's not always trying to paint lines when he's trying to be aggressive uh because I think he's confident in his transition game he doesn't need to make it perfect uh he's willing to finish at the net all these things have been really positive he takes so much time away uh, the court position i think has gotten so much more dynamic which has mm-hmm. helped him attack the short balls is that he's moved inside the court what's uh what's your off season wish list for felix before we get to to 2022 and and what or sorry 2023 uh expectations i feel like there's a lot of uh there's a lot of almost low hanging fruit for felix's game it's not hard to kind of think of things that he can even make another jump from, you know, after this career year, best season he's ever had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, because, you know, you have got such a good eye for the game and, and I, I love your thoughts on, on Felix's game that I've heard in the past as well. To me, the low hanging fruit is, is his weakness areas. I think we don't, probably both agree is his backhand and uh, return of serve can be it used to always just be kind of not great or okay, but it actually has gotten better. Like, and he told me, we talked about that as like in one of the matches, I think it was against Bublik in Basel just cause I was there and watching every point it was like more easy to pick up and stuff. But I was like, Bublik has obviously a great serve and he like broke him like three or four times in two sets and was like, and he's, and he said, I was like, you know, everyone talks about your serving and stuff, but you returned really well today. And he's like, yeah, like that's something I've been working on since the U S open. I feel like I've made improvements and just, centering the ball better and you know and he was happy with that so i think he knows that he's needing to improve that and become an elite returner so that's the one thing where i see like he has a, a, a good he's on the way there already so i just want you know keep working on that i think you know he knows that um and i want to hear yeah hear your thoughts on that as well um and then the back end to me like i think i said it like another time we talked his back end always looks maybe it's because he's like six five but it always looks cramped to me it looks like too close to his body I don't know if you mean, I know he he stands open stance a lot for those or kind of like slightly open stance. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just the TV angle, but it's like, you know, when he's been playing good and when he's been winning, like he was hitting his back end really well recently. So like, it didn't seem like a big liability or you could argue that he was just hiding his back end really well and players were like only getting their like 10% of the match. Right. So, but I thought he was hitting a little bit better, but that's something that he can definitely like, um, like Casper Ruud did this, like I think he could probably, you know, I'm not the coach, I'm not the guy who I'm not gonna act like I know exactly what he should do, but I feel like he potentially could make a technical change to like make that a little bit flatter because he does try and play that with a lot of spin based on like I think his like how he holds the racket. Um, so that's yeah, if he could just you know a little bit more Holger Runa esque or Djokovic esque be able to like crack it down the down the baseline a little with a little bit more flatness and, and really keep opponents on their toes then then he, you know, he brings them into even deeper water. So yeah, I'd love your, love your thoughts on that as well.
0: That would be huge if he could go to the garage on the backhand and make some adjustments that, that help its consistency. Because even on this great run, if you look at the losses he suffered, it's, it's oftentimes the backhand that was kind of at fault in key moments. So I think that still pops up for him. Um, the return hasn't bothered me much, at least as of late at all. Um, I've actually seen some really great aggressive returning that's worked in his favor, Mm -hmm. Um, but also the second serve, you know, he doesn't hit a traditional kick serve. It's predictable. It goes body almost every time. And on the indoor hard courts, he's kind of masked that by pumping up that second serve, like around 105 miles per hour. Um, With that speed, it's going to be hard for opponents to actually take advantage of the predictable placement. But can you hit with that speed outdoors? um in the elements and also on the slower surfaces the fact that it's a slice serve and not a kick serve starts to hurt you more so uh I think that second serve lags behind the awesome qualities of the first serve um and uh and the back end it would also be great uh if that could be a little bit better he's really improved his decision making uh his court positioning and and all of that so you know it was a career best year Here's my take on on what to expect last year. I try really hard not sorry. Next year, I try really hard not to overreact to results in the fall. Uh, Felix's best two months were kind of. Um, February and October, mm. which is really doesn't look like a coincidence. It's the indoor hard court, uh, time of the year. And honestly, you can't make or break a season on indoor hard court. With that being said, I expect him to have the best year of his career next year. I would fall short of reacting to these, you know, this, the run of three titles and the Davis cup title and, you know, go to, okay, 2023 is the year that FAA becomes tier one. I don't think that happens. I think there are still too many holes, uh, still too many things that he's not doing at the elite level. Um, So I'm, I kind of fall in the middle. Not the tier one jump, also probably the best year of his career.
1: Yeah, that's a good good point. Just, I would love to know, because I've heard you mention tiers before, who are your tier one players currently? A fair question. Uh,
0: that would be Novak Djokovic, Carlos Alcaraz, and Rafael Nadal. Uh, on surfaces, on clay, you, you throw in Stefano Tsitsipas. For all this time, I've been saying on hard court, you throw in Daniil Medvedev that he, he, he needs to maintain that status. It, it hasn't
1: looked great recently. It's fluid. People can come in and out. Yeah, Yeah. obviously. Yeah, no, I I got you. Um, yeah, that's fair. I think, um, as far as expectations, you're spot on, you know, I made a video earlier today. I was saying like, what's next, you know, I, you got to think, and I think I was kind of talking about this more in in Canada in general. Like I think, you know, men's, a men's grant, major title is, is the next thing we're like looking for. And I don't know if that's like the next step for Felix. I think it would be like, to me like honestly it would be amazing if he won a, a slam in 2023 um going to the australian open obviously if you're riding this level like would it blow my mind if he won the australian open i don't think it would blow my mind anymore it used to be like there's no i can't see him winning a major in 2022 and i didn't think he he would um obviously there's a few steps between there's making a final would be one of them uh winning a masters you know they're not necessarily connected but um, you saw Carlos win, I think two masters last year, obviously beat everyone and, and then win the U S open while being untested against Djokovic and Nadal at the slam. So we, we, I like that. I like that narrative going forward. Anyways, this is about Felix. So to me, it's like, yeah, like, can you, is he going to beat these guys in like Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz at, at masters 1000s and then in slams. Um, and then, yeah, like, what's he going to do, you know? And I think, you know, that's just all up to him. Like it's, it's, I can't, you know, it's weird to predict like he's gonna win a slam next year. But what I know is I agree with you. I think it's gonna be the best year of his career because he actually didn't have great results at the slams this year. He had a good quarterfinal at Australia, played amazing, almost beat um Medvedev. And I think that set up his year well. And then he actually had a great result, I guess, at the at the French, almost beating Nadal, playing one of the, you know, the best match, you know, giving him the hardest running at all tournament. Um and but then he, he has a lot of points that he can gain uh, Wimbledon and the US Open, which could be, you know, two of his best tournaments. So, yeah, I think it's gonna be his best year and all the things you mentioned and, and I mentioned in the areas that he can prove improve. That's like always a good sign, right? When somebody's six in the world, they've beaten everybody on tour, basically, and then they still have like pretty big areas of improvement that they can still do. You go like, man, that's 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 an amazing sign because a lot of people look like they're maxing out their game when they're like 20 in the world. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, and that's that's always been
0: very present, a part of FAA and, and how you evaluate him. Um, look, I want to see more consistency, which I think, again, I think he's going to achieve. You look at like in March, first round loss, Indian Wells, Miami, uh, de Zancho, Ketsmanovich. The, that's the kind of thing I think he needs to avoid. And then the second thing is to play better on the slow stuff, because the big wins were there. The great efforts in the majors against the top players were there. Uh, a, a lot of good things. Let's go to Chapo. Out of all of the players who had big falls, and you look at Denis Shapovalov: final in Seoul, semifinal in Tokyo, final in Vienna, and uh, and this Davis Cup title, where he got the win over Kokonakis, actually lost his first two singles matches. Anyway, mm. um, of all of the players, it's probably Shapovalov whose opinion. I've changed the most um, watching in the last two or so months. It's not because of results. It's because of what it's looked like. To me, it's looked like kind of a different player, um, making high percentage decisions, keeping his head still, uh, keeping his lower body grounded, abbreviating his follow through. These are all things that visually I see that makes Mm -hmm. me think that that 2023 is going to be huge for him.
1: Yeah, I know I know what you mean and because it is those really nuanced things that have got him playing better. He's like played his way into playing the right way cuz he obviously came through that really tough stretch after the French Open um where he was just losing every match, you know, and you go it, when you lose I think he lost six matches in a row, which is, you know, quite rare. I I would love to see the stats on that like how many top 25 players or whatever lose six matches in a row. Like that's like it was pretty bad. And and I was watching all those matches and they were like, you know, it was obviously like the some of the tennis he played there was really sporadic and kind of like the classic Chappeval of bad tennis where everyone piles on and is like, you know, his, he's never consistent. Like he's like never going to get it together. Um, But then I did see him like, and I you know, like, I saw him like putting in the work still. Like he's not losing because he doesn't care. He's just like checked out. Like he was like, one time actually I was like walking home from Stuttgart. I was in, it was in Stuttgart and I was walking back and him and Peter Polanski were walking on the other side of the high or road kind of. And, you know, it was like, not, it was like before the tournament started and they weren't just like shooting the shit. They were literally like talking about return positioning and like kicking it and like kicking a servant. He was talking about something like technical I could tell. And I was like, that's cool. Like, you know, he's 23, like he's making a couple million a year. Like, Oh, like life's good. You know, like you could just, you could just mail it in. Like some, I think players do on the, on the tour, but he was you know, trying really hard to find ways to like, you know, not add things to his game. Cause I don't think, you know, like he has the weapons to beat anyone. It's, it's like what you said, it's like figuring out how to like make that game better. And so I guess whatever, you know, they figured out and Peter Polanski, you know, you have to say, helped them do that. Cause he stuck with him. Well, there was definitely people thought like myself, he might get rid of Peter. Cause you know, didn't look like he knew what he was doing. Maybe he got an older guy in there who knows more. He's been on the tour longer as a coach they've played their way into like you said playing really and i think like mature tennis like when the ball's deep to his backhand and spinny you know just kind of yeah, picking up nicely like he has the skill to do but just putting it down into a reasonable place in the court where you can just stay alive in the rally and then waiting for the shot and then taking it but t- still taking it with margin then and like not not needing it to finish it on that shot but the next one or whatever and then come forward and i really like how He's been playing doubles like every tournament. Like he played a lot of doubles this year. I don't know if you knew that, but um, with uh, Rohan Bopama, I think, as the guy's name. I, yeah, he's, yep. and he's an old veteran double doubles player. So you know, you're you're watching him lose first round, and then he go play two doubles matches, and now Chapo's uh, net game is honestly elite, like as far as like singles players on the ATP tour go, and that's really helped him in in this latter half of the season because he'll he'll play that smart tennis and then make his way to the net. And I watch him have like the absolute confidence to finish basically most volleys. Like everyone, you know, you're going to get past, you're going to miss volleys, but you know, if you can win 65% of your net points and you, and you just crank that number coming up to the net, that's an amazing stat in tennis. So that's kind of, it seems like he's him and Peter have figured out a way to play the chapel tennis, which is like, you know, the big weapons in the game, but just like make it more efficient and optimize it, which I, I think you'd probably love to see Gil.
0: Yeah. Play chapeau tennis in a controlled manner. You know, that that's all it is. It's it's control and, and discipline. And look, a lot of guys have tried. I mean, it was kind of Mikhail Ushni came in there, tried to reel in his shot selection, I think was literally like branded as a shot selection coach. And it just, (laughs) and it just didn't work. I think Uh, I saw
1: chapeau hit him. (laughs) I don't want to like go crazy here, but I literally think while he came in, he came in for another stint here. And should like hit himself with his rocket a couple times in the head, like with the strings, not as, not as crazy as you needed back in the day, but I was like, what is going on here? Like, this cannot be the takeaway chapel gets. Yeah. Right. Uh,
0: and then Jamie Delgado came in, who's done so much work with Andy Murray. Um, and, and that was kind of short lived. So yeah, I mean, Peter Polanski, he seems like the guy, he seems like the guy who actually reached Dennis um, again, Let's see what happens at the start of next year. But I've been really impressed.
1: Yeah, we'll see what happens at the start of the next year. I think, you know, Shapo is definitely, I would say, a very confident guy. Like he's got, as you, everyone can see, you know, he's not afraid to like say what's on his mind. He's pretty confident. Someone would call him cocky. And I think uh, Peter Polanski is like similar age. They're friends off court, probably before they were coaching. So I think maybe that's why that relationship seems to be working out well now, because they uh, have that kind of eye to eye view or whatever. Good
0: point. All right, let's talk about your time in Europe. How long were you there?
1: Was there about eight months from end of March till mid November?
0: I want to start here. You just did the indoor tennis swing. A lot of people talk about cutting those events, the tennis calendar. It's too long Uh, that that's where we should kind of cut things off after the U.S. Open and, and really, really shorten. And I think about the local events that are on the ground as someone who just kind of works at a lot of those places, I mean, are we crazy to even consider uh, cutting these events?
1: Well, you know, I get the scheduling thing and I would, I would be, I would be a fan of cutting down the schedule, uh, t- tennis season to maybe like eight or nine months. Um, those tournaments though, I th- I think you can't take away those tournaments because I haven't been to a ton. I mean, I've been to Delray beach 2020, um, you know, it was okay. Attendance. Like it's like, okay. And it's like, and there's a lot of tournaments, I think, in the world that are like, okay, but Stockholm was packed and just an awesome, like, you know, it's a it's a country steeped in tennis, obviously history, at sweet venue. It's like one of the ones I talked about a lot. You can just, in the main stadium there, it's not big you can maybe sit 5,000 people, but you can stand at the top. There's basically a wooden bar all the way around. So most people, if you'll watch it during the day, it'll be like, oh, nobody's there. But there's actually like a, a number of people above just standing there watching the tennis and you can just come and go as the point's play, which is I think way more tennis stadiums should be like that. But that was an amazing venue or vibes, packed house. They would probably make tons of money. Basel in Switzerland was sold out, I think, most days, and Feder wasn't even there, didn't even show up, which actually, you know, might have been a hangover effect because a lot I talked to a lot of people who actually bought tickets to see him, and then he just didn't come. There's a lot of drama behind that actually within Switzerland that I learned about, which is funny. Um but those ten those events and the European events in general, I would say, are very well attended, and so there'd be no. It'd be hard to cut those tournaments. I think if they're money making tournaments, I think there's other areas in the year that you can. And you know, if you're, you're using from tournament logistics, like you're never going to get a rain delay indoor. You're never going to have crazy wind that makes the tennis dumb. Um, so, I think those tournaments have a little bit of an advantage that way, and, and it's a, always a very controlled environment. So, I think that I think that that swing of the year is awesome for tennis purists. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, they, those tournaments are rocking from what I saw.
0: It's kind of a media question. Tennis should be covered in person. Uh, I'm sorry. Sports should be covered in person. Uh, technically that is the optimized way to uh, do this, but in tennis it's a tour and it's hard. And we have, uh, most of the season, the vast majority of the season being covered remotely. Uh, you got to cover it in person. I mean, first of all, I want to know what challenges you ran into and also kind of what were the benefits that you were able to uh, kind of take advantage of from that position?
1: Yeah, well, there's a great question and I'm happy to, to give my honest opinion here. Um, the benefits for me was, you know, as a, as a someone who's doing this full time now and, you know, trying to make this, you know, into a very profitable career, obviously, or just at least enough to provide for my family, it's the, the benefits of being on the ground as a tennis fan, first of all, it just unmatched. Obviously it's just way better to watch in person, especially from behind the baseline. And as media member to get credentials to the number of tournaments I got to, which were mostly two fifties and, and some five hundreds um, was awesome. And then as far as like a media perspective, it costs obviously money to, to put people at these tournaments. And so my benefit to that, as far as like, you know, YouTube channel, if you've seen my channel, uh, I've got some really good interviews. So I did Casper sit down, Bianca Andreescu twice, Shapovalov, and then I did Felix. I wasn't able to video it, but um, you know, those are kind of, in my opinion, like premium content that you just can't replicate over a zoom call. And, and it's, and it's, you know, I don't see anyone else doing that, which is, which is great. Cause I'm, I want to bridge, you know, I think what you and I do and, and the other people in, on the, you know, more social media or YouTube side of things, we're, we're bridging the gap I think between tennis fans who are online and their sport that we love and and it's hard to do that when we're all just online sitting at home so my big problem with it all though is is you know i'm putting myself out there paying my own way to get there and it did feel like a lot of times the atp or the tournaments or both were trying to keep the tournaments a secret you know in a a way like it was sometimes very hard to get player access and obviously that's because i'm a smaller you know i'm not the new york times showing up being like hey can i interview this guy so there's a lot of that so you got to play the whole game of being nice to the ATP media representative. So, and, but then also asking for interviews and like following up with that ask and then kind of annoying them to make sure that they, they do it. Cause it's easier for them to just not do any interviews all week for the players. But that at the end of the day, doesn't help the player doesn't help the tournament or the ATP. So we're trying. So it felt like a weird tension of like, it always felt like I was stepping on people's toes, trying to do our job as media, which is like even just talk to players after matches. Sometimes at the smaller ones, depends on the organization of the tournament. It was actually very, like, for example, Stockholm was very unorganized with the media. Basel was like amazing with it, you know, bigger. So it's, that was a frustration for me because I would go to Stockholm and I was, I didn't talk to Shapovalve once because they just like, didn't make it happen. I was like, how can that happen? As a, I'm a Canadian reporter, I'm the only international reporter here at this tournament. How is it possible that, you know, that we don't get any of that. So that was a big frustration for me. I think it's, honestly i think tennis and media would be at a crossroads going forward because i saw and the vibe i got talking to different people is there's less and less people even media members traveling to these tournaments so it's more and more controlled by the atp and by the tournament which is fair enough and maybe that's how tennis changes as as media is so much easier to produce these days maybe tournaments and the atp just become their own media companies and just basically have a monopoly on all the media obviously isn't good for guys like me and you but uh maybe that's where they're going but if they're not going that way obviously getting allowing you know professional media to have access to the players in a respectful way that puts them in a good light and the tournament's in a good light is something they have to do or else or else people will stop or continue to stop sending media there and continue the tournament to cover the tournaments less and less which is we all see that happening
0: yeah the in-house media is uh also won't cover anything negative which is a problem um Exactly. I'm not really surprised by by the second half of your answer there. I, I appreciate that honest answer. Uh, it was a good one. Um, let's end on on a more positive note. Favorite big tournament, favorite small tournament. Didn't you know, I know that you went to some as as a ticketed fan, some as a credentialed member of the media. Uh, everything's in play here.
1: Yeah, I think I'll go by rank. So I only went to Roland Garros, and that was my first ever uh, major. In, in person. So that was pretty cool. It was crazy to see being from Canada where tennis is maybe sixth or seventh on the list of most popular sports to see how like, oh, this is like a big deal in Paris, which is a major international city. And it's like the tennis is a big thing that's going on. Um so that was cool just to see how much infrastructure they have compared to Canada, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um best major or masters that I thought I've been to all of them in the US. I've been to now most of them I think in the world. And I think Rome is the premier um ATP Masters event, it was just such a cool setting, like you're in Rome, which is cool, but then they also just have it laid out very well, it's not crammed like Monte Carlo is also cool, but it's like on top, it's all like it's like Lego fell on top of each other, it's kind of crazy mm-hmm. uh, and Rome you can just walk around freely and you can see into every court from the top basically, except for the, the big two ones, but yeah, it's a, it's to me it's, it's, it's primo viewing and especially with practices, like it's epic for that, um, so that's my favorite big one I guess, and then the favorite small one is a toss up. I think, you know, Geneva was really cool, uh, but I would probably have to give it to. Uh, and then Gestad was really cool. Cause that's actually where I lived and it only had two courts. So like some challengers have more courts than that. I probably go to Stockholm though. Cause it was the most hyped up I saw. And like, it was, I thought the indoor was cool. And it kind of reminded me of Canada being like dark and cold and just playing tennis huddled inside of a wood shack. And it was, it felt very like underground, like fight club. Like we don't talk about tennis. But it just happens in this dome. So it was a cool vibe and the court looks cool there. And uh, you know, the, the hall, if you can get there, Gail, and see all like the pictures of the legends on the wall, it's like, it doesn't get better than that. When it comes to like tennis history, it was was pretty, pretty cool. So I'd say Stockholm was my favorite small tournament.
0: Totally. Well uh, I think it's awesome that, that you got to do that. I was super happy when I first heard about it. Um, And uh, I thanks for coming on and, uh, and sharing some of it uh with me and um we'll catch up soon. We got a lot to talk about maybe off air, but uh yeah. for now. Um uh, appreciate you coming on.
1: Thanks for having me on, Gil. It was great and yeah, happy to to share and uh go Canada in 2023. I don't know about that. Have a good one. <laughs>